Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Today, we speak with Andre Colace, the Executive Director of Access Services, which is the paratransit service for the Los Angeles, California metro area. We talk about Andre's background in government affairs and how lobbyists and government affairs offices often work in transit agencies across the country. We also take a deep dive on funding for transit at the federal, state, and local level as well as discussing his approach to outsourcing all of the paratransit service to contractors in the Los Angeles area and new projects they have coming up. All that on this edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today I'm with Andre Colace, Executive Director of Access Services in L.A., Los Angeles, California. We're together in Nashville, Tennessee at the American Public Transportation Association's annual conference, I was just out in L.A. about a month ago, and Andre and I were going to record this then, but we had so much fun at lunch, <laughs> we lost track of the time, and so we're doing it here. And Andre, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I think you're the first person I've interviewed that's CEO of a paratransit service. Yes. So, Access is very unique in that way. Yeah, so, so we want to talk about that some sure. today and uh, and how you got there. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself and um, how you got into this role and, and, and then a little bit about Access Services. Sure. Well, I, I started my transit career. I started in a legislative setting. I worked for the Minnesota House of Representatives, and I ended up working as, we called it, a committee administrator for the House Transportation and Transit Committee. I worked for a wonderful woman named Jean Wagenius, State Representative Jean Wagenius, to so shout out to her. And it was in the mid-90s, and there were a lot of things going on in Minnesota, and, and our committee ended up passing the first state-local match for the Hiawatha Light Rail Line. We ended up doing some studies on commuter rail, and we ended up doing a lot of other interesting things. So it was a very interesting time to be involved in transit, and that's what really got me started in the industry. And so, it, so I was in Minnesota, and then uh, the Jesse Ventura got elected governor, and so I fled the state and I went to California. <laughs> and I ended up getting a job in government affairs for uh, Foothill Transit in West Covina, California, which covers the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles County. I worked for another wonderful woman named Julie Austin, uh, general manager. And from there, I went to the city of Culver City in their transportation department, where I also did government affairs, but also kind of started expanding what I did to grants and budgeting and other things. And then finally, I started working for Access Services in Government Affairs in 2006. And two years ago, I became the interim executive director, and a year ago, became the executive director of Access Services. So, and what were you doing when you first started there? At Access Services? Yeah. Mainly Government Affairs. Okay. So that's interesting. I'd like to touch on that just a little bit because sure. I haven't talked to anybody before who became a CEO through government affairs, I don't right. think. That's a very important role. I don't know that everybody really understands what that is for, right. for a public transit agency. Tell us a little about the role of government affairs in public transit. A lot of things that transit does is impacted by the federal federal laws, federal regulations, state laws and regulations, and even local ordinances. So I think every transit agency needs either a person or a couple people to really reach, make sure that the executive director is working on interacting with those decision makers and making sure the policies that are coming out of Washington or whatever your state capital might be or whatever your town might be are 
work for your transit agency rather than work against them. And I, so I think in this day and age, I mean, there's so many decision makers, so many people formulating policy. I think any transit agency needs someone who can work on those types of issues. And that was my specialty for a long time. And what I enjoyed about it is I enjoyed transit policy. I enjoy interacting with decision makers and going to Congress and going to the state legislatures. Obviously, I had a background in it, so it helped me kind of work, work uh, with those decision makers. But I just like the interaction of how a law or regulation would affect my transit agency directly. And oftentimes there's, there's significant impacts. And so again, I think that's why a government affairs unit in any particular agency is very, very important. So. so there's about 190 major transit systems in North America, as you know, with over 100 buses. And the ones in the US, I think people don't understand civics enough. Yes. And, and understand the three layers of government and how they interact and how they, how they impact transit policy. So just as a primer, could you walk us through, I mean, I think you and I probably share the passion for this, how most transit agencies work. Uh, maybe you can use LA as an example. Sure. And then how they interact with local government, state government, and federal government. I know we didn't really talk about this, but I think it's, I think it's important for the uninformed to understand that we're funded by a multiple layers of funding. Yes. They come from the feds, the states, and your local taxes, and then how all that interplays. Take a few minutes and walk us through that. I mean, you can give us a little civics lesson. Sure. Yes, as you say, most transit agencies have multiple sources of funding in California. You know, for example, LA Metro and my other other transit agencies, including Access, receive federal funds. Okay, and how do you get those funds? How does that work? There's formulas, right? Sure, there's formulas. I mean, depending on what type of entity you are, I mean, yeah, there'll be a formula. At this point, it goes through, for example, it goes through a metropolitan planning organization, or it goes through a designated recipient like Metro. Okay. And then what happens is the transit agency then has to file a grant with the Federal Transit Administration. That's how they access the money. And that's, of course, obviously an oversimplification yeah. of that, but that's in general how it works is that the federal government authorizes this money, it's appropriated, and then at a certain point, the transit agency has to file a grant with the FTA. Now tell us where that money comes from, because I always think this is ironic. Yes. How does how is the federal transit funds, where do they come from? A gas tax. Exactly. Right. So what's the irony there? You know, people are driving their vehicles and pumping gas in their car, and it goes to the federal government. That pays for highways, but it also pays to get people off the highways. Right. So they can ride our transit service. But and as you know, though, the big emerging issue, though, is the gas taxes are not paying for all of these obligations. So we have to use general fund money, so-called general fund money, which is not from a specific source, to bolster the trust fund that pays for all of these, these priorities. And so that's one of the big discussions at APTA here and ongoing because right. everyone wants to make sure that this trust fund can continue to pay for the roads we use, and also the transit systems in our communities. And that's part of the role of a government affairs person yes. in a transit agency, right? Correct. Now, do a lot of transit agencies, we'll wrap up the federal and then move to the state, but do a lot of transit agencies, in your understanding, have representatives in Washington, D.C., outside of our association? Don't a lot of them hire, like, government affairs people in D.C. to yes. get them in front of congressmen, et cetera? Yes. No, a lot of, a lot of systems have, basically, lobbyists right. in Washington, D.C. I mean, I think it's, I think, depending on uh, the size of the agency, I think it's a good idea because you can't be everywhere at once and to have someone who's in Washington, for example, 
who's around everybody and knows a lot of people can really help facilitate things when you need them. Yes. So not just setting up meetings with uh, your congressman. I think anyone can do that. But, uh, you know, from time to time, there always will be an issue. And I think that's when having a lobbyist will come in handy because they tend to have the connections and contacts that can help facilitate a discussion about what's going on in your local community and help make your representatives aware of that. That's good. Yeah. So most transit agencies have an operating budget and a capital budget. Yes. And they a capital is like bricks and mortar and buses and trains and things like that operating or your day-to-day cost to run the service, salaries, electricity. Those uh, get put into grants. They get sent to the federal government. The federal government then has a formula. So they have like a 507 or a 511. These are sections of code. Yes. Which the money gets funneled down usually to a state entity, either a metropolitan planning organization, an MPO, or some other holding agency. Sometimes like when I was CEO of MTA, that money came right to the state. Yes. And then we distributed it to the smaller systems and we kept some of the big money for ourselves. And then that money gets distributed out to the agencies. Now tell us about, in California, it's a perfect example. How does state funding work? It works in a similar manner. Yeah. At this point, Access Services doesn't receive any state funding. But for example, having worked for the city of Culver City, they do receive state funding. For, and so, I mean, California has been, always been very progressive in terms yes. of transit funding. So there is a, a law passed, I believe, in the 70s called the Transportation Development Act, or TDA, and that was, I believe, a quarter cent sales tax statewide. And okay. so the way that gets distributed in Los Angeles County, for example, obviously the state collects the money, but then it's sent to the MTA, which is the essentially the planning organization for Los Angeles County, and then it's then distributed by formula, another formula right. to the local transit operators. So I would also say that, you know, we're talking in generalities here, but every place is different in how they kind of... Yeah. How they tax, how they collect the money, how they distribute the money. So again, that's where I think having a government affairs professional is very important because you really need someone to be cognizant of everything that's going on. Yeah. So the devil is always in the details in these things, particularly what, when it comes to money. Right. That's one of the reasons why I love our transit industry is there's so many job disciplines involved in running a transit agency. Yes. You know, nobody would people probably wouldn't think about the fact that, hey, we need lobbyists. Yeah. We need government affairs people who can help navigate the regulations and make sure the funnels are there to help fund our transit. In addition to things like HR, finance, IT procurement, legal, PR, there's tons of different kinds of jobs. Yes. So back to the government affairs job in the state level. Okay, so then that, that money gets spread out like to all the different cities who have transit agencies and the smaller towns. And then there's even local county funds right in a yes. lot of places so tell us about that city or county funding yeah L- la again los angeles county has four four half cent sales tax so you have proposition a proposition c measure r measure m if i'm getting them all correctly <laughs> okay. these were all voted on by the voters these I'm are assuming. all voted on yeah. by the voters and they all have different formulas and how the funds are distributed but for the most part most of these funds are distributed for transit purposes Right. So uh, what was exciting about Measure M was that for the first time, the county dedicated a small amount of funding to paratransit purposes. So that's Access great. Services is going to be receiving some Measure M money for the first time. So that's the first uh, direct allocation of sales tax money that we're going to get. So I think that was wise and that L.A. County realized that, you know, with the growing cost of paratransit, the growing demand in the future, we need to plan for these types of things. So. So in America, when people say, you know, how much money do you get off the fare box and none of these things make money, well, they're not designed to make money. No, they're not. The transit systems are like parks or like any other service. They're They're public good. Yeah, they're they're, they're subsidized because they're a public... 
public good, just what you yeah. said, yeah. So, and, and most transit agencies are getting, you know, 15 to 25 to 30 percent of their money back from the fare box, and the rest of it comes from all these layers of yes. funding. And then some of it comes from advertising on buses or advertising on, on the uh, shelters or even now digital advertising on ticket vending machines and fare boxes and inside vehicles where they've got little TV screens where you can, so there's all kinds of different layers of funding. Um, and we were just talking a few minutes before we started this conversation about the cost of paratransit yes. and how it's actually one of the most expensive services, but one of the most needed yes. because it helps people who really without it wouldn't be able to stay independent. And they might end up in nursing homes or other places that cost much more at, at a subsidy. Tell us about that and the role of paratransit. I mean, you're really one of the top national leaders in paratransit and that you're CEO of this big, massive paratransit operation. Um, what is the role of paratransit in society and why is it so important? Well, I think what a general listener might not know is that the development of ADA paratransit was really because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the act said that if you're running a fixed route transit system, which is the transit systems that we all know in terms of the buses that go in a certain a certain path and on a certain route and the rail and so on and so forth, if you're running one of those systems, the ADA says you have to have a so-called complementary ADA paratransit system. It was what was really interesting about it is that they didn't just say you have to have it, which was a requirement. They said it was a civil right. The ADA was a civil rights bill, and what's interesting is that for the first time it put a transit element, which is paratransit, as a civil right. So what Access Services does, what every transit agency in America does, is provide a civil right in the form of ADA complementary paratransit. And really the idea behind it was that it was supposed to be essentially complementary to the fixed route. So when they were devising the law and the regulations, everything that they developed essentially was trying to mimic what the bus was. So Because the idea wasn't necessarily the idea was essentially independence and access, and that was really the essence of the development of, of the paratransit regulations. And when did that get passed? The ADA was passed, I believe, in uh, 1990. Yeah, it was way back then. It but then the regulations were developed, several, it took several years to be developed after that. Right, so. uh, Senator Bob Dole and a lot of those guys were yes. very involved in getting that done. I remember when that was signed, I got involved in paratransit in 87 before the law. Right. And one of the things I've seen is the law has created a raft of regulations. Yes. Which has, I don't wanna, it's good, but it also creates a standardization across the industry that some folks have taken that to the level where paratransit has become what I call gold-plated, where it becomes very expensive. Yes. And we get focused on the rules instead of on the people that right. we're there to serve. Yes. And I know, you, I know that we have to follow the rules and the rules are very important, they're there for a reason, but we need to remember that our end goal is to serve people with disabilities. Like how many people with disabilities are you serving in the LA area? Right now, we have about 160,000 customers who are eligible, and that's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people. That's phenomenal, yeah. But, I mean, L.A. County is a, is a place where there are 11 million people, so right. L.A. County in and of itself has a lot more people yeah. than most states. So tell us how you stay focused on the people, and then through that, tell us about your service. What do you all do there? Well, again, I, think, I do think the rules are important, yes. but the rules are also a... As we say, they're a, they're a minimum. Yes. So you're always allowed to go beyond that. But you just have to make sure when you're running your paratransit system that you do meet those minimum requirements. Right. But nothing says you can't go beyond it. Like so, door to door versus curb to curb. Exactly. Yeah. So we've been, I think when these rules were developed in the 90s, it was obviously a different time. It was an analog time. It was pre internet, pre, pre cell phone. And so I think 
the discussion at the time, I mean, maybe you were involved, I was not involved, but I can imagine was like, well, how do we balance the needs of the customers against the needs of the contractors? So if, if we're providing a civil right transportation where I can't deny a trip, you have to also then give something to the providers to allow them to be able to provide the service. And so that's where we get things that I think on, for the customer are not that popular really. So as you know, there's a negotiating window that you're allowed to do. So if I call for a trip at 8 a.m., I can offer you a trip any, anywhere between 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. And so when you explain that to people, they don't quite understand yeah, it. That doesn't work for me. But again, <laughs> but if you think about it in a 1990s context where I can't deny trips, you have to allow the contractors to a certain extent to spread the demand over a certain period of time. Because if you've got 250 seats available at 9 a.m. and you get 750 requests, what are you going to do? So I think that's where the law compromised. But that being said, I don't think at this point in time that in any paratransit system, I think that's one of the main sticking points between the customers and the providers. But I think there was a reason for it at the time. But again, as, as things go forward, as other things have emerged, like Uber and Lyft, I think now people are starting to question that mode, that yeah. kind of paradigm a bit. Because they're used to getting same-day service. That's exactly. another deal is that ADA requires one to seven days in advance. Yes. And people are want same-day service now, right? That's true. And, and again, that gets to this idea of it's a civil right. I can't deny you. But so you need, as the provider, you need to give me some time to take all these trips in and, and schedule them effectively. So, and you know, and I, and I've... And, I've spent a lot of time with the community and our customers in Los Angeles, and we have these discussions. They understand it when you start talking about it in terms of transit operations. I don't necessarily think they like it on an operational basis, but I think that they understand it when you explain it in those terms that, hey, there's two sides here. There's the customer, but there's also a contractor. And again, under the ADA, we're not allowed to deny any trips. Right. So tell us about your focus. What are you focused on at LA, at LA Access Services, and a little bit about the service itself? Well, Access is, is very unique in that when they passed the ADA and they said that there's this, this requirement for complementary paratransit, LA County has always had a lot of individual transit systems. So they, for various historical reasons, there's not just one big transit system. There's a bunch of different smaller transit systems scattered around the county. So at the time, if you had looked at the ADA strictly, LA could have ended up with, I think, 30 or 35 separate paratransit systems. Wow. All, and... I think the region at the time made the decision that that was not going to be efficient or good for the customers, so they created a, a coordinated paratransit system. So that was the birth of Access Services, where we provide paratransit service, and we provide this obligation on behalf of all of the fixed route entities in Los Angeles County, which is currently, we have 45 member agencies. So the advantage of that is that someone in the LA Basin can travel without having to transfer from Pomona to Malibu. It might take him that, you know, that trip might take a while in Los Angeles County given our traffic and everything, but you know, you don't have to transfer. If you had designed the system where everyone had their own separate system, you may have had to transfer three or four times on that same trip. So this coordinated paratransit system really was a huge benefit for the customer in LA County. And I think a very wise decision also. And then how do you actually provide the services? You have contracts with subcontractors? Yes, we have six service regions. We have four main regions in the Los Angeles Basin. Then we have something called North County up in LA County, which is Santa Clarita in the Antelope Valley. And there are two other separate contractors up there. And our contractors are responsible for, for everything. So they're responsible. In their region? In their region. Okay, everything yeah. from soup to nuts. Okay, like what does that mean for, for an average provider? So they, they have to take the reservations, they have to schedule, and they have to provide the 
the trips and also handle things like ETA calls, day of service issues and things like that. So we are essentially the oversight agency. We contract with them and then it's one of our main jobs is to make sure they're fulfilling the terms of the contract. I was in your offices, as I mentioned, about a month, well, maybe three weeks ago, and uh, very impressed with the level of professionalism and well, the commitment you. to serving people with disabilities. Your team has not lost that. We all went to lunch and chatted some, and your top team was with us, and they are committed to serving the people that really need this more than anybody. So I want to compliment you on that. You've well, got thank a tremendous you very much. team there. Yeah. Thank you. We do. Yeah. So just in general, how does that work? So uh, like once every few years, you put out an RFP, and then companies bid on running as contracts? That's and then, correct. Don't you have some taxi cab stuff too? When we put out our RFP, we obviously set out the minimum terms and what we expect you to do, and then it's up to the contractors to decide how they're going to provide the service. And so one of the other unique things about Access Services is that when we started, we started with a lot of taxi companies providing the service. So we've kind of grown up with taxis. So when some of our contractors are, are paratransit companies, but they're also taxi companies. And so about 50% of our service is provided by taxi cabs. And at Access, we don't believe there's, a, there's no difference contractually between a trip provided by one of the minivans that we use or a taxi cab. And I think that's been one of the things that has made us, I think, uh, more affordable than some of our peers is the heavy use of taxi cabs in Los Angeles County. And those drivers are drug tested, background checked under ADA regs? They have to meet all of the requirements. That's good. Yeah, we yeah. do the same thing in DC. We yes. have three taxi cab providers. We call that non-dedicated. And right. you've done a great job of keeping the cost affordable. So the issue is, you remember that Malcolm Gladwell book, Tipping Point? Yes. And uh, the problem is, I think, about paratransit services or the challenge that we have is that the costs keep going up faster than the funding does for paratransit. So across America, the average cost per trip sometimes touches $50 per trip in some places. And so Transit CEOs, like I was in Baltimore, are looking, so I operated about uh, 380,000 trips a day in Baltimore. 10,000 of those were paratransit, yet I spent $100 million a year on paratransit services mm -hmm. and $700 million on the rest of my service. Right. So it was one-eighth of my budget for one-thirty-eighth of my passenger count. Yes. And it's a very expensive service, and it's unsustainable if the costs are going up at 6 to 8% a year, but your funding is going 2 to 3%. Right. So how have you addressed that in L.A.? I mean, you've got your costs down some. How are you doing that? The way we're structured is we are, our governing board includes our member agencies who have a financial stake in the service, but also, also have a stake in us providing good service. And again, we've addressed it by, in, in several ways, and I think, again, the main use of non-dedicated vehicles and taxis, I think, so when a contractor bids, if they're a, a historic taxi company, and they're, when they formulate their pricing, they're like, well, I'm gonna provide 60% with employee drivers, my employee drivers, and then I'm gonna provide 40% on taxi cabs, and they know that the cost of the taxi cab is gonna be less than the, the dedicated. So that ends, that pricing eventually comes through to the agency, which is access services. So. Again, I, I think it's just that we've grown up with taxis. We know how to use them. They have, there's no difference in how we regulate them or oversee them. And that has led to these, these cost advantages because obviously with a taxi driver, they're not your employee if you're a contractor. You can use them to provide service during the peak times so you don't have employees having to do either split shifts or just sitting around. And also, you don't have the cost of capital. You don't have to purchase the vehicles. 
Right. And so our long-term pension costs, OPEB, I mean, all the stuff that comes with that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, so that's how you've kept your costs like $38, $39 a trip, which is right. phenomenal. And it was, it was, it was less than that, but yeah. you know, LA, California, LA County and others have passed minimum wage laws. So right. our minimum wage, our wages are creeping upwards to $15 an hour. And that's had a, a huge impact on our cost because 70% of these contracts is labor. So. so how many, would you say, how many passenger trips a day are, is your agency providing through your we contract? D- we do between 10 and 12,000 trips a day. So are you, do you know where you rank in the number? Of, are you like third largest in the country? It depends. Probably depends. New York City, right? It, it depends how you, you you go. New York is always number one, right? Exactly. And then it's all. Then, then it's all. It's always uh, Chicago, you know, Chicago and, and us. Yeah. Kind of jousting, depending on what statistic you use for right. uh, the second or third largest. So you were we're either either number two or number three, depending on how you look at it. And so. You guys provide all the paratransit service. So our buddy Phil Washington, who runs LA Metro, uh, how has he interacted with you? How do you fit into the big scheme of things there? Well, on our board, LA Metro has a direct board seat, which Phil appoints. And then obviously there's the relationship we have with our colleagues at Metro, uh, because Metro is our funding agency we have to interact with their board to get our funding every year. So what we do is we have a process where we have an economics firm do trip projections for the, the, for the following year. And we have a model where we build up our budget based on these trip projections. And we go to Metro and we say, we believe we're gonna need this much money to provide paratransit service in the next year. And so then, you know, there's a the usual back and forth about that, but ultimately Metro you know, funds our budget and we have a memorandum of understanding with them, so which outlines the terms of our agreement and you know, we provide paratransit for another year. Basically, that's how it works in LA that's County. Great. Yeah. Tell us how the service is running. Is it smoothly? What kind of KPIs are you measuring? You know, how are you doing in on-time performance, accident frequency, those kind of things? Well, thankfully, things are going pretty well right now. Not wood, because uh, in paratransit, as you know, uh, it, things can change fairly quickly. What's been an interesting phenomenon is that for a long time, we used taxis, but then we wanted to use more taxis, but these taxi drivers didn't necessarily want to work for our contractors. But now with the emergence of Uber and Lyft, the taxis are hungry. Uh-huh. So they're kind of flocking to our contractors because it gives them work. And so that's actually been a very positive development in Los Angeles for us is that we've hit the sweet spot where the taxis want to do work for access. And so that has given us capacity to handle demand. That's been a very, very good thing. So our on-time performance has been in the, you know, been in the low 90s. Our, we have our, our KPI on that, on that is 91%. We have a 20-minute on-time window. And we've been 92, 93 most months. And a lot of that has to do with, I think, contractors also embracing new software packages, modernized software uh, dispatching packages, because as you know, when when paratransit started out, it was basically people doing it by hand. I remember doing it by hand. Yeah, and and now it's it's quite hard to do that by hand when you're delivering uh, 12,000 trips in Los Angeles County. So that's been a big benefit as well. But one thing we've really focused on in the last, yeah, I'd say the last year or so, our board and staff is, how do we expand the number of KPIs that we have for our system? So we used to have five main ones. Basically, on time is the big one. Right. And then we've expanded them to about 15. 
so that they measure all sorts of different things from, you know, from again, on time right. to our phone system, pro productivity to safety. So we have a KPI now for accidents and a separate KPI for incidents to make sure we're running the safest system possible. That's great. And you were mentioning earlier a couple of neat innovations that you're doing. Tell us about those. Well, one of the things that we, you know, when you talk about access having kind of a passion for paratransit, a passion for our customers, I think one of the things we've been focused on is trying to deliver the same sort of technological advances that we all take for granted. So we've developed a application, an app called Where's My Ride, which is a uh, smartphone ETA app, which allows customers to track their trip and not have to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, where's my ride? That's been very successful. That, that also has an element in it that allows you to, that lets you rate your ride after your trip is completed, similar to Uber and Lyft, so we can get feedback that way from our customers. So that's been very successful. With very little marketing, we're about, we have about 3,000 people who've downloaded the app, and we're just about to start a more, a heavier marketing push to get other people to do it. And this is, the technology is a win-win, because not only does it increase customer satisfaction, but it reduces phone calls. We're looking for these win-win solutions. A lot of times you find them in the, within technology. And so the other thing we're working on is, is online booking and reservations and cancellations. And right now you have to call. And we, you know, we need to get away from the, the analog way we were doing things in the 1990s to making, using this technology again, which is going to be better for the customer and also better for our bottom line. So that's one, that's, those are the, some of the things that we're working on, really focusing on the technology side. That's great. What do you see as the future of paratransit in America? I think that's an excellent question. I think that's a big question. And I think because of the emergence of Uber and Lyft and kind of on-demand transportation, I think there's a lot of pressure at the local level uh, to provide something that's beyond next-day paratransit. They want people want same-day service. So the question is going to be, and I know a lot of systems around the country are already doing it, the question is, can you do it in a cost-effective fashion? I mean, how can we balance the needs for a system that serves people with disabilities better with the costs, as you're saying, of, of those systems. So I think a lot of people are experimenting with that in Boston and Kansas City and elsewhere. And I think at Access, we are taking a close look at those systems to see how those, those pilots are performing. And we're all, and so we just need to keep our eye on it because I do think that ultimately people want a better paratransit system. And I was in DC last year and someone said to me, who works for one of the committees, they say, he said, we want better paratransit and we want to pay for it. So I thought that was very good, that they, they want to kind of, maybe we should have a national dialogue about what should paratransit be? We have these rules and regs from the 1990s. Is there, should we have a national discussion to perhaps update them? And a I constitutional think, convention, so to yes, speak. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, I, and I think, I think it needs to be really a discussion between the FTA, the affected communities, and the transit industry to say, okay, what should we update these? If so, where's the funding going to come from? Right. And right. I think that's really what's going to be percolating in the next five years or so is is probably the change a change to the paratransit regulations. Yeah. That's just my prediction. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It's, government always lags behind technological innovations. Yes. And the innovations are here right now. Yes. <laughs> and so, like you said, over the next five years, we'll catch up and say, okay, maybe we should tweak these. Because a lot of people working on these pilots, these same-day pilots, I think they have, there's still a lot of open questions. That's right. Yeah. So I think, I think it would be good if, if we all could get together and and answer those questions so that everyone has certainty. Yes. yes and I yes. think that would lead to better service across the board. 
Final kind of a personal question is, you know, I, I, I've spent about half my career working in paratransit in one form or another, and I always felt a real great sense of satisfaction going home every night, knowing that, you know, I basically was doing a ministry today, helping right. thousands of people whose lives would not be like they are today if I wasn't able to help provide the service to them. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you and, and people who are interested in the paratransit industry for their life career and for their choices, what would you say to them? And, and the sense of, the internal sense of, I'm really involved in something important here. I think I've always believed in government as a force for good. I mean, I grew up in the 80s during the Reagan era when I think that concept was questioned and I'm kind of a contrarian, so I rebelled against that. And I said, <laughs> you know, and also with my parents and others that the government is a force for good. And so that's what's been ex exciting for me is to kind of try and put that concept into practice. So either I'm at the Minnesota House of Representatives or Foothill Transit, we wanna make sure that we're serving the public the best that we can and helping them with their lives. And I agree with you, it, you know, paratransit is immensely satisfying. It's a very difficult business, but yes. at the same time, it is very satisfying because when you talk to people, I end up running into people everywhere I go and I say I work for Access Services and they'll say, oh, my grandmother used to use it. It was a fantastic service. It's great. It's yep. great to hear that. Yeah. We're doing very important work in the paratransit world, and yes. I'm so honored to have you here. Thank as you our for guest having me. On Transit Unplugged. I think what the work you're doing in LA is a model for the nation in helping to ensure the continuity of paratransit services by keeping the cost reasonable, by trying approaches which aren't always gold plated. Everybody has to have a wheelchair lift equipped van come to their house, whether they need it or not, yes. you know, with a state employee driving it. These other approaches are keeping it reasonable so that we can expand the service, help the people that need it, and keep our eye on the ball, which is the end user. Yes. So thank you so much for being our guest and being a leader in that industry. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged. Hopefully you've enjoyed this in-depth look at the funding of how paratransit and transit works in America and also how to make paratransit work well, like they're doing in LA. Thanks for being with us. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.